Hello, and welcome back to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron. It's been a while. It has. It's been like two or three months. We took a we took a small break to kind of get some things in order, but we're back, and we'll be releasing episodes on the same schedule like we were previously. As for this episode itself, we don't have a general theme like we normally do. Both Aaron and I just kind of picked cool topics that aren't really related to each other. So I guess this is like a whole new beginning then. We haven't had an episode like this since the pilot. No, it's a it's a free for all. It's a uh, it's a grab bag. Whatever you had on the back burner, you've just been waiting for a rainy day for it. Here's your chance. You can bring it out and show it to everyone. Right. I, I'm going to call this episode the back of the fridge episode. This is the stuff that this is the stuff that we've had tucked away for months that might be a little moldy and rough around the edges, but you know, it's, it's still good. We just couldn't find a home for it. You know, we, we gave it all the stink test. It passed not with flying colors, but it's edible, right? It'll do. It'll do. You, you got to wash it down a little bit, but it's still really good. Gets the point across. All right. What you got for me? All right. So, my first topic after our break has to do with a very special bird, because it's me, so of course it does. And more specifically, that bird's memory, which is somewhat ironic because this is a topic that I've wanted to cover a few different times, but just kept forgetting about it. But this animal actually has one of the most remarkable memories of any bird alive, or any animal really, and that bird is the Clark's Nutcracker. Never heard of it. Really? Okay. This is going to be fun. So, the Clark's Nutcracker is a songbird native to the Rocky Mountains of North America. More specifically, it's a corvid, which is the family of birds that includes magpies, jays, and crows. And this is a family of birds that's known for being overly intelligent, at least by avian standards. So, it makes sense that the Clark's Nutcracker is in this family when you consider just how intelligent it is and what its brain capabilities are. Because many other jays, crows, and magpies have demonstrated extraordinary intellectual capabilities, though in different ways, right? There are crows and jays that use all kinds of tools. A lot of these birds are able to recognize themselves in mirrors, which is a really, which is a really important litmus test when we're evaluating the intelligence of animals. A lot of dogs did not pass that one. Definitely. So a lot of, exactly. So a lot of birds in this family are more intelligent than dogs by that standard. You know, they're are crows that crack open nuts by having cars run over them. And then they have learned the traffic patterns well enough to safely walk into the crosswalk with people and collect the crushed up nuts from the road. So these are really, really smart birds in this family. It's basically just a family of geniuses. As for the Clark's nutcrackers, though, in terms of their diet, they're fairly omnivorous. They eat a diet of insects and seeds, but really they specialize more in the seeds particularly those of pine trees. And anyone who took a class on evolution at some point knows about the work that Darwin did uh, regarding birds and how their bills are shaped to a certain activity. And the nutcrackers are a great example of that because their bills are evolved to open up pine cones and extract the seeds. Mm -hmm. They all have a lever in the back and someone can come up and manually operate them. Another giveaway is the uh, wooden painted teeth and the little tuft of a beard. And the soldier outfit, too. <laughs> yeah, it's standard. Yep. This is a really good tack to take in terms of food because these seeds are really, really calorie dense. And this is an important consideration when you live in an environment as the as harsh as the Rockies can be, especially in winter. 
So ounce for ounce, these pine seeds are more calorie dense than chocolate. So ton of energy is packed into these tiny little things. The trouble is these seeds are really only available on the trees in the late summer and fall. So trees will produce an excess of seeds as well to overload the consumers. So some seeds go uneaten and those seeds can then become trees, right? The problem then for the Clark's Nutcracker is, well, what do you do in basically any other time of the year when there aren't pine seeds available? Well, you could eat insects, but the Nutcrackers instead decided to take advantage of the wave of pine seeds and start hoarding those seeds in caches. Thousands and thousands of caches per individual bird. Each Clark's Nutcracker will hide tens of thousands of seeds every year. The trouble is, how do you remember where all of them are? And this is where we get to the incredible memory capacity that that these birds have. Is there a margin of error? Like They gotta miss a couple. There is, and I'll, I'll get to that, because that is also really important in terms of the relationships between the, pine, the species of pine tree and the Clark's Nutcracker. They're not perfect, but they are incredibly good. The memory capacity for, of these birds is truly unlike any other. Because of the thousands of pine seed caches, the Clark's Nutcracker can remember a, where about 90% of them are. Which is a ridiculously high success rate. That's very good. Do you, you know how that is relative, like a squirrel? That's what most people think of when they think of storing nuts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're way better than squirrels. The other thing that is worth noting is that the Clark's Nutcracker can still pinpoint these locations in the middle of winter under several feet of snow. So even when the ground in which they bury the seeds has been totally covered by snow, they still remember where it is, which is completely insane. Like, think about how often you lose your keys, right? We just talked about how sometimes you forget about things in the back of your fridge for months on end and only remember them when they start to smell, (laughs) right? It was a little uh uh-oh moment. Most people can only keep track of like maybe two or three food caches of their own in their house. The Clark's Nutcracker has thousands of these caches and can still recognize them when they're covered up with snow and they recover 90% of them, which is ridiculous. This, of course brings up the question of, well, how the hell do they do this? And it turns out that these birds have ridiculously enlarged hippocampuses, which is a part of the brain that handles spatial memory, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes a lot of sense. I remember all the way back in high school, you would remember if you saw a hippo on campus. Exactly. Hippocampus. Yep. And you'd you'd remember that information where? (laughs) with the hippocampus in your hippocampus (laughs) putting it to work um but studies which compared the brains of clark's nutcrackers to other similar species of corvids which don't rely on stored food as heavily show that the brains are relatively similar across the different species except in the hippocampus where the nutcrackers brains are very much enlarged this is also the part of the brain which is thought to house numerical cognition so in other words how well you can process and use numbers and quantities where you do math, essentially. Um, And there is some reason to think that the nutcrackers excel in this aspect as well, because they've done studies where they presented Clark's nutcrackers with two different piles of seeds that are slightly different, but look pretty much the same. And 
almost always the nutcrackers are able to distinguish the pile of seeds which is larger. They choose that pile over the smaller one, even when they look pretty much the same, and they're only different by a few seeds. What's also interesting is that this ability does seem to wax and wane at different times of the year. The hippocampus in the brain of the Clark's nutcracker will enlarge in the fall and winter and then shrink back in the spring and the summer. Well, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. It's very efficient. Brains are costly. Right. And they only pay for the cost during part of the year when they need it. When you when you have the calories to make up for it, it's like uh, you look at a koala. They're eating leaves. It's not high in calories. They're all smooth brain. There ain't much going on there. Right. And it's not like the leaves are hard to find either. Yeah, it's just sort of there. I'm pretty sure if you put the leaves on a plate, they can't recognize that it's food. They have to pluck it. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, it's like people who don't recognize that a chicken nugget comes from a chicken. I was thinking, like, if I hand you a burger and it wasn't in a wrapper, you just, you do not know what to do with it. <laughs> or put the burger on a plate and you just like, what is this? I don't. <laughs> I've never seen this in my life. Yeah, this is normally in a brown paper bag. What the hell are we doing here? Uh, it is also believed that the nutcrackers will use landmarks to help remember where the seeds are. So they might bury seeds in a cache near an, another large tree. So they can kind of use it as a landmark to pinpoint its location later on. This may sound like cheating a little bit, but it's not really. Because in my opinion, finding landmarks in the woods is still really difficult. Like, I've spent more than my fair share of time lost in the woods. And so I recognize that just seeing a large tree doesn't really help you re realize where you are. The same patch of woods can look completely different from different angles, too. That's cool that they do that, but it doesn't really take away from their, their incredible memory, at least in my opinion. But if there is a fault with their memory, it's that it doesn't last longer than about nine months. Beyond this point, they do really start to forget. But again, this makes sense, right? Why would they want to remember where last year's seeds were hidden? They've already eaten all of them. Or those seeds have now germinated into trees and they can no longer eat them anyway. That kind of makes sense. It goes back to your original point of why pay the cost when you don't need to. Mm -hmm. That information is no longer useful. But paying the cost for this memory does have some really serious advantages because they have food stores that last throughout the winter. And they can feed their young on stored seeds. So they start breeding in January or February when most other year-round residents won't start for another few months and the migratory species won't start for another few weeks after those birds. So the nutcrackers, because of their memories, essentially have like a two-month head start in the breeding season. And I imagine that's very beneficial. Absolutely. That's a huge plus for them. No competition. This strategy really pays dividends from an evolutionary perspective. Another part of this, another part of the Clark's Nutcracker, though, is their relationship with the pine trees that they feed on. Um, because the nutcrackers and the trees kind of seem to have co-evolved to an extent. As I've gone over, the nutcrackers are clearly very well evolved to extract, hide, and find pine seeds. However, the trees have also evolved to rely on different dispersal methods. Many pine species uh, use the wind to disperse their seeds, which makes sense, right? The wind is really powerful and it's readily available. It's, it's, all, it's kind of always blowing. However, the strategy does limit the size and weight of your seed. Plus, it, it helps to occupy different niches than your 
direct rivals, right? You want to try and occupy a different space and use a different strategy so you don't compete with each other directly. Mm-hmm. Can Everyone can't do the same thing, essentially. Right. right. Otherwise, the species that is best at that eventually is going to outcompete all the others. So what's happened is many tree species now seem to rely pretty much exclusively on the nutcracker and other similar species for dispersal. Because no matter how good their memories are, the nutcrackers aren't perfect. Some seeds are always left in the ground to become new trees, right? There's still that 10% that doesn't get eaten, even from the nutcrackers. What's interesting, though, is that the nutcrackers are so heavily relied upon by trees that similar species in other parts of the world are actually used to help reforest areas. So people will just leave out the seeds of certain trees that they want to repopulate in an area and they'll like leave them at bird feeders or in like little caches or, you know, in their yard or whatever. And basically just let the birds come and collect them and then bury them in the ground and then trees will grow. So basically the birds are doing all of the intensive labor of planting trees and seeds for the these conservation efforts really so in areas that you know are really threatened by deforestation and things like that these birds are a really useful tool in helping repopulate the forest i think it's also interesting how much these influence an ecosystem because if you have these nutcrackers they're going to spread the trees that have the large nuts the, the large seeds that's what is going to benefit from them so trees without that i, I don't think they're being outcompeted but you're, it's reshaping the ecosystem in that sense. Right, right. The, the Nutcracker, they have a very strong influence on the, the look of the forest around them because of the way that they, you know, disperse and hide seeds that eventually grow into trees. So the, the seeds that they like to eat are the seeds that are eventually going to become trees. And thank God they aren't just a little more efficient. <laughs> you don't get any. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? Like, if the nutcrackers were 100% effective, they would eat all the seeds they'd find, and the trees would ha- the trees that rely on them for dispersal would just die out, right? Because the nutcrackers ate all their seeds. And then when those trees die out, what are the nutcrackers going to feed on? So, essentially, by forgetting you know, 10% of the seeds that they hide, the nutcrackers are then, you know, able to still have trees that produce pine cones for them. You think they're forgetting or you think they're just a little lazy? I think they're forgetting. I don't know. I don't know that you could call them lazy when they bury thousands of pine seeds. If I knew like the last 2% of my cash was on the other side of town and it's the end of winter, I might just, I might just not. Now, if they were just a bit more energetic, they're waking up 5 a.m., they got their ice water bath, their prime energy drink, they're going through the whole American psycho routine, maybe they would get all the seeds, and then there are no trees. I don't know. I feel like if you told me 2% of my paycheck was on the other side of town, I would drive to the other side of town. Uh, you know what? You got me there. Considering that I already work on the other side of town, so I'm going to go there for work anyway. I might as well go over there and get the, you know... The two percent of my paycheck. Too often I drive places and then spend money. It would be really refreshing to drive somewhere and actually make money. Yeah, have a net gain for once. I can at least use that two percent to cover some of my gas expenditures. Okay, fair point. I, I feel like they just forget. I don't think they're lazy. 
they go to all that effort to bury all those seeds in places that only they'll remember. Okay, now what if I told you 2% of your paycheck is across town in the form of nickels and dimes that I've scattered about a city park? Then it's a little different. Yeah, but it's not like I'm not going to do nothing. At that point, I'm probably just going to smack you and wonder why you stole 2% of my paycheck and then scattered it in a park. Like, what kind of agent of chaos are you? And why are you targeting me? I'm a metal detector salesman. (laughs) (laughs) You're creating a demand. Hey, kid, if you buy one of these, I know a really great spot. You could you could try to use it. I I can't tell you how I know, but I know. Uh, But anyway, from a conservation perspective, the nutcrackers are a real boon in certain circumstances because, you know, why spend hours and hours of volunteer labor planting trees when you have an entire species that is instinctively driven to plant the seeds for you? Yeah. How are the birds doing? Are they least concerned or are they a little threatened right now? Uh, They're least concerned, but some of the pine tree species that they feed upon are threatened. Mm. So the activities of the nutcrackers are, you know, being heavily studied and observed. Um, And the nutcrackers then are being used to help assist certain populations of trees because the nutcrackers, although they're very specialized in a certain type of feeding, um, that type of feeding applies to many different tree species. So even if one is suffering, they can kind of shift and focus on another species. So it's not, they're a little bit more generalized than, you know, the pine trees are in that regard. The pine trees are focusing essentially only on the nutcrackers, whereas the nutcrackers are kind of focusing on a, a bunch of different pine trees. They like to shop around a little bit, but it sounds like it's for the best in the end. These are very good birds to have. Yes. Yes. And they're very cool birds, too, with a really, really fascinating uh, psychological makeup. In any case, that's the Clark's nutcracker, and that's my piece. Very cool. The bane of Clark's everywhere. <laughs> and the bane of nuts too yeah all right yeah I, I really like that piece it was cool especially the conservation thing at the end i would not have even thought of that right it's, it's the broad scale things i'd also like to point out that we did an entire bit about a bird called the nutcracker without doing a single uh, testicle joke so the bane of clark's everywhere oh that's where you were going with that yeah, totally missed I, that. yeah it was a it was a shoehorn in at the end it again Back of the fridge sort of thing. I thought maybe toss it out there. See how it went. Yeah. Not too yeah. great. Not my even, best. Even then, we still went most of the bit without doing a joke like that. So we didn't we didn't stoop that low. I'm proud of nope. it. Nope. We're uh, we're highbrow here. We really are. Only metal detector jokes on this show. <laughs> Who would have thought? All right. So that's my bit. What do you got for me? Okay. So, I'm going to talk a pl- about a place called Santa Catalina Island. Just going to call Catalina Island for short. Have you heard of this? It sounds vaguely familiar. There, there's actually, there's a couple of these. This specific one is off the coast of California. Okay. So, I'll walk you through a little hypothetical. Yeah, a little introduction here. Imagine you're on vacation. You're relaxing on a nice Pacific island on the beach. You're having a drink without any care in the world. Suddenly, you see several people running away from the shoreline screaming. And what do you think they're running from? Uh, Sharktopus? Okay, a shark. Yeah, that's probably what most people would think. 
you know, they saw the telltale fin and everyone started booking it. Maybe it was a pack of large seagulls. Uh, maybe maybe a red tide or something like that. Yeah, something like that. But if you're on Catalina Island, this place is a different, bit different. Because if you see people running away from the beach, there's a decent chance that a bison got into a picnic basket. Wait, you said a bison? A bison, as in the American buffalo. On an island in the middle of the Pacific. Yes, because for the past hundred years, a small herd has been living there thousands of miles away from the Midwest. What? Yeah, yeah, that was that was my thought when I first heard this too. So I'm going to rewind to a little bit of the history of the island. So Catalina Island, small island off the coast of Southern California. It's about 75 square miles, so not huge. It's kind of your standard Mediterranean climate, very dry summers and a wet but a very mild winter. It's very rocky, and it's dominated mostly by drought-tolerant shrubs or small trees. Now, okay. over the centuries, it's belonged to many different groups, starting with the Native American tribes known as the Pimugnans or the Pimuvit, then the Spanish, then the Mexicans, and then the United States. It's been passed around a lot. It's been used for a variety of purposes as well, from fishing to naval bases, gold mining. But it wasn't until the early 1900s that under the U.S., it became more of a tourist destination. Okay. And this kind of gives you the background of the island because, like I said, it's been passed around a lot. So sometimes things just happened on the island and it's not exactly recorded very well. It, it wasn't lawless, but there's definitely a lot of permit process being skipped. Okay. So first, a guy named George Chateau purchased the island for 200000 Modern day, 5.4 million U.S. dollars. Yeah, still really good price for a whole island. Yeah, he found the city of Avalon, which was still the largest city today. And then over the years, we would see clubs, hotels, restaurants, tourist attractions. They actually had purchased a pirate ship from 1753, and it was the oldest ships around at the time. One of the oldest pirate ships, yeah, still around at the time. It just brought it up there on the island. Okay, okay, okay. But... What do you what do you mean by pirate ship? Because a pirate ship is basically just any ship that's used to steal something from another ship. In my mind, a, a ship used by Chinese pirates. Okay, I did not write down the name, but the, at that time, the line between pirate ship and uh, solo military vessel was pretty thin. Well, yeah, that's how pirates went. They most countries just said, "Hey." If you let us alone, we, we give you a safe harbor. You want to be knighted? You want to command the military for you? You can do that. Just steal from the other guys. Yeah. Yeah, just ask Sir Francis Drake. Oh, it was a great gig back then. Oh, yeah. He made a killing. Literally. He killed <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> he did. Anyways, so after Chateau defaulted on his loans... We pass it around from various investors like the Banning Brothers, a couple others, and finally Williams Wrigley Jr., as in Wrigley Chewing Gum, as that in mogul. Wrigley Field in Chicago? Yes. No, yeah, that, that yeah, that comes up later, actually. Really? Same guy. Yeah, he loved Catalina Island. It was his favorite place. Huh. All right. So, like I said, it kind of passed around a lot of owners, and it kind of settled with Wrigley. And there's a lot of different investors, companies started, failed, etc. Okay. At some point, 
a herd of bison were brought over to film a movie. What movie? That's the thing. No one knows. <laughs> the issue is kind of how poorly things were managed back then. You know, you're kind of building up this island community from scratch. We don't know the exact film they were in. What if they were just brought in to film like a, it wasn't even a movie. It was like a f***ing Marlboro commercial or something. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two possible contenders. One was a 19, 1924 silent film known as The Vanishing American. The other was a silent film of 1925 called The Thundering Herd. Both these were based on Zane Grey novels. The issue is The Vanishing American doesn't have any bison in the film. So it's possible they just didn't get out of the director's cut. The, the, the Snyder cut of that movie has all the bison in it. <laughs> just three hours of them. <laughs> and the Thundering Herd did, of course, have bison, but there's no evidence of the movie ever being filmed on Catalina Island. Right. Why would you bring bison to an island to film a movie when you can just go film the movie somewhere where there's actually bison? Yeah, they filmed pretty much the entire thing in Yellowstone, I'm pretty sure, with some scenes in other areas, but they they didn't use Catalina Island at all. Right. Shipping bison somewhere to film a movie sounds like... It sounds more like a money laundering operation than it does like an actual movie set. It sounds like something that would have happened on the set of The Room, honestly. Like, that's yeah. something Tommy Wiseau would have done. Just brought <laughs> random bison onto the set. He just wanted to keep him there in case uh, they might look good in the background. So here is the most plausible theory I found. I did find a very useful article on allaboutbison.com. This person probably spent weeks trying to figure this out. They were looking at shipping logs. They were looking at farms, invoices. This is the most feasible one, is that these were a backup herd. They were brought to Catalina Island just because they could. They could keep them there, and they didn't have to worry about them getting out. They just let them loose there, and maybe if they needed them for a later film, they could bring them back. But in the end, it just cost too much to ship them back, so they left them there. So, regardless, they were definitely brought to the island with the purpose of filming something. That is the common information that's passed around. I don't think they were farmed there. They were brought there for a movie. That's what every source I found said. What movie is not certain? Maybe it's an indie film that never took off. Because it would make a lot more sense if the bison were brought there, like, for conservation purposes or something. Like, you know, bison were being shot so extensively, you know, on the continent that they brought a bunch of them to an island just to have them there in case, you know, that way no one's going to shoot them over there. You know, it's harder to go to an island and shoot bison than it is to walk into a field in South Dakota and shoot bison, you know. That wouldn't make more sense to me. That would but... make more sense, but there's no evidence of that. It's it's a mystery. I think it will largely always be one. There's a lot of he said, she said sort of thing that you can't really verify. A lot of old newspaper articles that, again, don't really add much clarity to it. Leave more questions than answers, if anything. Yeah. But regardless, the popular opinion is this was an insurance kind of thing. In case you needed more bison for another Western, you just have them here, come back for them when you need them. Or the group of Hollywood A-tier celebrities, they're more like the C-tier no-names who didn't make it out of the director's cut. All right, uh, I'm going to... I'm going to take a second here and put this to our audience. If anyone who's listening has any knowledge of what movie 
these bison were brought to this island for. We will reward you for your information with a crisp high five. It doesn't help that one of those movies has been lost to time. Yeah, that too. The thundering herd is gone. It's <laughs> There is no evidence of the footage anywhere. Yep. Regardless, a small herd of bison, about 15, were brought to the island in the 1920s and more or less just let loose. So now that we got that out of the way, I don't think the history <laughs> lesson really cleared anything up. No, no. I want to discuss the more important bit, I think, is the effect on the ecology of Catalina Island. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking this sounds pretty similar to Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos. Yes, I was think just thinking about that. And I thought that too, but I think you'll find that this is actually a bit more nuanced. There's more moving parts to this one. I felt like the cocaine hippos were pretty nuanced, too. The man. Well, I guess more so it's not a clear we should just get rid of them sort of thing. Right. But even with the hippos, it's like, sure, we can get rid of them. But how? It's not exactly easy to take out a hippo. (laughs) It's one of the reasons that there shouldn't be hippos in South America. But I digress. If you want to learn more, go back to the invasive species episode. Yep. Yep. And learn exactly how much I hate mute swans. Yeah. Oh, man. The editing on that one. (laughs) All right. Anyways, so for the bison themselves, let's discuss them. I found one study that said these bison tend to be significantly smaller than the mainland bison. Makes sense. They're on an island. Don't have as much elbow room. Right. They also tend to have more open wounds, lower reproductive rates, and are just overall in poorer health compared to your average bison. It's almost like they're not in their natural habitat. Yeah, well, that'd do it. Additionally, the bison are found to be more likely to develop issues such as behavioral problems, such as pacing in circles, underbites, and different leg lengths. And one study in 2007 found that roughly half of all the bison surveyed actually contained DNA from cattle. So there's some hybridization going on there. Okay, wait. Of course they're running in circles. You put them on an island. You turned their ger- their journey across country essentially into a track meet. Like, of course they're running in circles. They have nowhere else to go. You put the marathon <laughs> runners in the 100-meter dash, and you're wondering why they're antsy. Right. Like, no, no shit. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Seems a bit obvious. These guys are nearly as majestic or powerful looking like the ones in the Midwest. Eh, maybe there's a reason they weren't included in the movie. <laughs> What if like a a studio exec came to the island actually needing bison and saw them and was just like, well, this is pathetic. Let's go find somewhere. (laughs) Some real ones. (laughs) One walks up to him. It's three feet tall. Yeah. He looks over. I'm pretty sure that one's a goat. (laughs) I I think my dog is bigger. Why? why What are we even doing here? (laughs) So like we said, these health conditions are due to a combination of things. Uh, B, or sorry, A, it's not their natural habitat. They don't belong there. The native plants on Catalia Island have poor nutritional values in the plants in their native range, and they're not really adapted to those plants anyways. And of course, another one is a lack of genetic diversity in the bison population. Yeah, that'll do it. Uh, This would explain why they have poor health and reproductive rates. uh, Another thing is their gestation period often overlaps with the dry season when there's a plant scarcity. So we basically took these bison and not only gave them the Habsburg treatment, but also put them in a space where there aren't, there isn't enough food for them. Yeah, it's not going great for them. Shocking. 
Despite this, they've actually done quite well on Catalina Island, even in less than ideal habitats. Of course, a lack of predators and hunters is probably the big one. But true. The population has actually fluctuated between one to six hundred bison. And they have occasionally brought some in to help diversify the gene pool, but for the most part, they're they're still there. They're alive. Right. Well, how big is the island? Seventy five square miles. And there are 600 bison living on this island. One to six. I believe it's kept much lower now. About one, 150. Still, that, that means you have like, that means you have roughly two to three bison every square mile. As for the ecological impact of the bison, it's not great. As you could expect, big herbivore on an island that never had any, it's not going to go great for things. Right. So a lot of this information came from population ecology and ecological effects of bison on Santa Catalina Island. So shout out to the authors for that one. Catalina Island already issues with large herbivores being introduced long before the bison. Okay. The indigenous plants were already greatly reduced. People have been on the island. There were cows. There were goats. There were pigs. It's already had the damage done. The bison probably weren't the ones to do most of it, but they certainly aren't helping anything. Okay. And it's also not great that there were no native large herbivores on this island, so the native plants don't have things like poison or spines to really deter them. So it's kind of just everything is fair game here. Okay, yeah. The bison had been found to eat both native and non-native plants, even stuff like cacti or woody shrubs when food is scarce. But they do prefer non-native grasses. This is kind of good because these grasses, which are already there, often outcompete the native plants. Okay. But on the other hand, the bison also spread the seeds of these plants in their fur. So it's a double-edged sword, balancing out. It's a Clark's Nutcracker type of thing. They're eating the seeds, but also helping to spread them. Well, they're limiting the spread. No, they're limiting the plants, but they're also spreading it. So they're ensuring, they're ensuring the existence of these plants, but limiting their dominance. Yeah, maybe it's a stalemate in the end. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a that's a net neutral aspect of their existence on this island. Another thing is these bison tend to feed more in the spring and summer, which corresponds to the dry season when the plants aren't growing as much. So they're kind of kicking them while they're down at this time. They're feeding on them when they're most vulnerable, and they overall do reduce plant coverage, which can lead to more desertification and heavy erosion at the start of the wet season. Another thing they can do is play a role in deforestation of small woody plants, and they kind of decrease this habitat in favor of areas more similar to prairies, and no surprise, it's where they're from, kind of overall reducing the tree diversity. So as they're feeding, while they don't necessarily go out of their way for these small trees, they do trample them. And not great for any of the native wildlife that relies on these trees for habitat. So in the, the plant's case, they're not great. They reduce diversity, they're potentially spreading non-natives, and they are altering the ecosystem to be more to their favor. But in terms of their effects on native wildlife, these actually seem to be minimal. With the exception of decreased habitat, their direct influence on wildlife isn't too bad. Well, except for the decreased habitat, which I imagine is a pretty substantial yeah by extension i guess it is but the uh the authors noted that they did not find many direct negative impacts on the small mammals reptiles and amphibians of the island 
but they also said they had a limited amount of time to study the population, so could be a margin of error there. Right, but also the fact that there aren't direct effects isn't necessarily a plus for the buffalo. Like, you know, like, John Gotti wasn't really directly linked with a lot of murders, but indirectly, he killed a ton of people, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm I'm just, I'm standing what the paper says. Like I said, it's moving parts. A lot going on here. All right, so you're probably thinking the bison are pretty bad at this point. Yes. So, like we said, decrease in plant diversity, altering habitat, reduction of plant coverage. Not to mention the bison themselves are just less healthy than their Midwest counterparts. Probably thinking we should just get rid of them, packing them up, send them back across the sea, put them where they belong. Sure. I'm actually going to come out in favor of the bison on this one. All right. Go on. So, for starters, like I said, they feed on non-native grasses. They also spread them, of course. But if we keep the bison in one part of the island, this is a short-term benefit. Okay, but what about the long-term? Like I said, it's a short-term benefit. No, there actually is long-term benefit because all these non-native grasses are extremely prone to wildfires. Oh, so the bison help prevent wildfires? Yeah, it's thought that they actually do reduce it. Now, of course, it'd be better if these grasses weren't there at all, but that genie's out of the bottle. They're already there. In fact, they can't even remove the bison all at once. If they did that, these grasses would spread out of control and the risk of wildfires would be way too high. This may be the only direct benefit, but I think the mere existence of the bison indirectly helps the entire island. Do we have any idea what the habitat loss would be just from these invasive grasses that the bison are keeping in check? Uh, the habitat loss? Right, like... I don't... How would the invasive grasses, aside from the wildfires, how would the invasive grasses affect the other native species of uh, fauna on the island if the bison weren't there? Oh, they tend to grow much faster. A lot of out-competing there. Right, so they'd out-compete the floor, but what about the, what about the animals that are there? How would the animals that are native respond? Would they still use those grasses for habitat the same way they use the native species, or would they lose habitat as a result of the invasives? So I saw that native species do not forage as efficiently in these kind of pseudo-prairie, non-native grass areas. And the ones that do are actually other invasive species on the island. Okay. So the bison are helping to indirectly control, not just, or they're directly controlling the grasses, but then by extension, indirectly controlling the progress of other invasives. Yeah, but I think the more important thing is the wildfire management. They did have a pretty bad one in 2008, and wildfires are very prevalent right now. So highly flammable grasses, that's not something you want growing everywhere, especially if it's not supposed to be there. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So like I said, their mere existence indirectly helps the entire island. In 1972, Wrigley and a couple others founded the Catalina Island Conservancy, and this is a nonprofit that protects and manages the wildlife of the island. Almost 90% of the land on the island belongs to the group. Okay. This nonprofit has been responsible for many conservation efforts, such as the eradication of three highly invasive grass species, discovery and rediscovery of three plant species on the island, 
the recovery of the island fox after a really bad virus outbreak, and countless education and community outreach programs. And where do you think a lot of the money for this comes from? The bison. They're the unofficial mascot of the island. No, they are the mascot of the island. There's nothing unofficial about it. Okay. The locals love the bison. If you go into town, they have a bison trail that leads you to all the unique restaurants and bars. They have the signature buffalo milk cocktail served from the bars, which does not actually include bison milk. They have bison burgers for sale in the towns. Those actually do contain bison. I I would hope so. They have bison tours. They have paths. They have overlooks where you can watch the herds. They are incredibly important to the community of the 4,000-some people that live there. So all this tourism raises a lot of money for them to manage the entire island. All right. That's a pretty convincing argument. I'm not going to lie. Not to mention this conservancy actively manages the bison population. It's not just free-for-all. They do take care of them. Since their establishment in 1972, hundreds of bison have actually been removed from the island and returned to the Great Plains. Yeah, at which point those bison were mercilessly bullied for being small and in, and inadequate by the other larger bison. Yeah, I thought of that too, but I didn't want to say anything. Hey, it's a thought that counts. We could always use more bison. That's true. It's better than no bison. And they actively sterilize bison to maintain a population of around 150, so they do keep them in check. Okay, all right. So the bison still do damage to the ecosystem, but it's their iconic status that raises money for the conservancy to fix other problems. So they're a necessary evil, really. That's the best way to describe it. It's, you know, you could eradicate them all, but they are still bringing in money. And when it comes to conservation, money is often what you need the most of. Yeah, well, that's how capitalism works. That's... There's no way around it. That That's life. It's needed for everything. So currently, there are other animals causing issues on the islands. There are bullfrogs, brown rats, feral cats, and mule deer. If we can focus efforts on all these invasive species, maybe we can keep the bison. You'd have to, because without the bison, you don't have the money. Exactly. That's, that's where it's, They're the cash cows. There have already been successes in eradicating invasive goats and pigs on the island, which, again, cause a lot of issues eating some of the native plants. Uh-huh. It's not far-fetched to think it might be possible for these other species as well. No, I mean, especially if they got rid of the pigs. Pigs are really hard to get rid of. In fact, I previously mentioned the mule deer. That might even be worse than the bison. One study found that they are known to feed more on the scrub island oak specifically which is one of the most vulnerable and important species of trees on the island. Whereas the bison don't prefer it, but they will if they are hungry. These guys just like to eat it. Okay. So the the mule deer really like the weaklings. Yes, precisely. So there might even be worse things there. And like I said, cats, feral cats on the island. That's the Achilles tendon of every island. Feral cats are awful. And brown rats, too. I mean, those are two of the worst. Yeah, extremely ecologically destructive, especially on islands. And I'm I'm willing to bet the bison are not nearly as bad as them. No, definitely not. 100% agree with you there. So there are still plans and propositions for how to manage the bison. 
Currently, they have a mostly free range of the island with the exception of the city of Avalon, which pretty much everyone lives in. Some papers have proposed excluding certain habitats from them and restricting them to one or two designated zones, or maybe slowly cycling them around. Okay. Essentially, they're still doing damage. Maybe we can minimize if we keep it in one spot or kind of gradually shift them, sort of herding them around. Okay. Makes sense. And to sum it all up, it's a balancing act. These bison are not healthy in this environment. They show signs of stress, poor health, and low reproductive rates. They also feed on native plants, which are historically very prone to overgrazing and already pretty damaged. And while they don't seem to have any direct effects on the small native wildlife, reduction of plant coverage is, you know, still never good. However, they're bringing in money, and money is probably the most important thing for wildlife conservation. And they have such significant value to the island's culture, especially to the locals on the island. Not to mention, there's still the issue with the non-native grasses. They do a great job at keeping their levels down. If we remove all of them too quickly, these non-native grasses will spread, and then the risk of wildfires goes up. Yeah. So yeah. even if you wanted to take them all out today, you'd have to do it gradually. you have to slowly work them down. All right, well, all right, okay, yeah, you, you convinced me on that one. And probably the last thing, if we're being honest here, if it weren't for the bison, I don't think I ever would have heard of this island. No, me neither, because you would never would have talked about it. Yeah, the uh, the story of the bison is just so interesting. That's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Honestly, this this whole situation basically se- just seems like a Pacific Coast version of Assateague. Just with bison instead of wild horses. It does. I you know, I even thought about doing that at one there point. There are a lot of parallels here. Yeah, Assateague is a uh, an island in Maryland which has a population of wild ponies. And uh, what what were they? A shipwreck? Is that how they got there? I believe so, yeah. And yeah, it's very similar, but everyone goes to Assateague to see the ponies. Not everyone, but people really love to see the ponies there. Oh yeah, they cause huge traffic jams if you ever go there and you just are sitting in traffic you know that like 200 yards up some car stopped to look at a pony that's walking right by the road and get all kinds of pictures so going basically going two miles on acetique takes like an hour and a half because everyone stops to look at all the horses it's ridiculous i imagine a similar kind of attraction fuels people who visit this island in the pacific as well so that same kind of intrigue is present here. And so knowing Assateague, as long as I have, that makes a lot of sense. And not to mention, they manage the pony populations on Assateague. Correct. And Chincoteague, which is the Virginia side. <clears throat> yeah, so it's a it's a push and pull of, you know, tourism and conservation. And you really do have to find the middle ground. It's imperative for everything. Right. Plus, the other cool thing about Assateague is that the ponies bring people in, but a lot of the trails and and you know signs on a, and you know information about Assateague isn't necessarily geared toward the ponies. So people wind up learning a lot about other really important things like barrier islands and salt marshes, you know, and sand dunes that they wouldn't necessarily encounter or learn that much about if they weren't drawn to Assateague by ponies again if if you go on google you type in acetate the first result after acetate is probably going to be the ponies those ponies 
really bring people to a lot of other really important information about coastal ecosystems, which is cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's the the gateway to a lot of community outreach and education. Right. A, a, a good gateway. A, not, a good one. Yeah. yeah. Well, not great for the island, but yeah, get, get, get people involved. Get them learning. And that is my piece. Nice. Nice. That's yeah. really cool. I had no idea yeah. that there were that there was an acetate in the Pacific with Buffalo. No, it's I love islands. Uh, even the invasive sometimes it, it's cool. They're they're each one is its own little experiment. It's got its own natural history to it. They're great. I, I could talk about islands all day. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, all right. So with that in mind, what are you thinking about for our next episode? I have a great idea. Shoot. Okay. Growing up as a kid, did you ever watch the Animal Planet show, The Most Extreme? Yes, of course. Yep, that, that that's my pick. The Most Extreme? We can do Extremophiles. All right, I'm in. Yep, I figured you'd like that. I'm in. I'm still nostalgic about it, the narrator. The weird. Oh, was it the green backgrounds, the <laughs> CGI animals doing jumping over buildings and stuff like that. Yeah, the weird green man who was made to do a bunch <laughs> of, like, crazy animal shit. And that poor green man. They're always, like, grafting on different parts onto him. Yeah, and the worst part of it is, they never paid Charlie Kelly to be in that show at all. Never once. Nope. He just did it all for free. He loves Animal Planet. Anyway. Alright, so, with that decided, you want to go ahead and take us out here? Alright. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, the best way to do this is to give us a like and review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, there's no Twitter anymore. There isn't? It's X. Oh, on on what was formerly known as Twitter. The app formerly known as Twitter. Oh. You can find us at Soup Pod Podcast on whatever the hell that thing's called. Or you could send us an email at theprimordialsouppod at gmail.com. All right. Sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.